Make mine podcast and my heart will sing. I should have known you'd pick that song. Oh, we're doing them all. <laughs> oh. It's something something blue by you podcast. <laughs> and all the cast podcasts. <laughs> Without you, I don't remember this one. Skippy to Casey at the bat. A sneer curled podcast slip. <laughs> Two silhouettes. I don't remember that one either. Uh, Peter and the Wolf podcast, 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 pod, podcast, pod, podcast, cast. <laughs> After you've gone. Also, nobody remembers that one. Uh, Johnny podcaster and podcast blue bonnet. <laughs> Podcastable podcasteress. We savagely deny it. Podcastacent. Podcastulous, we certainly certify it. Uh, oh, and Martin's and the Coys. Podcast, yeehaw. <laughs> oh, the podcast and the Coys, they were reckless mountain boys. There you go. There you go. Yeah, I deleted most of this movie from my memory. <laughs> Let's talk about it. All right. everybody, and welcome to Me, Mom, and the Mouse, a podcast about watching cartoons with the Google Doc broke. I can't remember <laughs> what this is a podcast about. <laughs> I mean, obviously I can, but it threw me off, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a podcast about the joy of watching cartoons with your family. We're watching every film in the Disney animated canon and talking about how it was made, what it means, and why we love it or don't. My name is Isaac Coleman, and I am joined, as always, by my mother, Rue Coleman. Hello, Isaac. How are you doing today? I'm doing okay. How are you doing? Uh, well, I think that intro shows that I've really got it together today. <laughs> really just got it all figured out. Yep, 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 yep. You know, I'm in a messy place right now, but this is a messy movie. <laughs> kind of, yeah. This week on the program, we are, of course, continuing the wartime era. With 1946's Make Mine Music, directed by Jack Kinney, additional sequences by Clyde Geronimi, Hamilton Luska, Joshua Medor, and Robert Cormack. All good directors, I guess. Uh, we're starting to recognize some of these names. We're starting to watch the credits and you're like, look, it's Teehee. Yeah. And yeah. I'm like, it certainly is. Yeah, it's true. I never really paid attention to the credits before. We're learning so much. This is technically a movie. Yes, it is. It is a movie made up of many different parts. What does this movie mean to you? Um, it feels a little bit like Cheap Fantasia. <laughs> oh, I can explain why that is. It's because it's Cheap Fantasia. Yes. That, um, that's the genesis of this project. Yeah. But did you have any, you know, fondness or negative feel like before so, we watch it for this show? So here's the thing. I had until, um... Until you were born, I had never seen this movie altogether. We owned the VHS when you were little, and I had seen it a couple times. I have seen some of the segments several times, but I haven't really watched this whole movie all in one go very many times at all. And some of them are very forgettable, so... Uh, I do like certain bits quite a bit, though. As you say, we got... The VHS. We got the 2000 VHS release. I don't know yeah. if we got it in 2000, 
but that matters. Yeah. So we had it. It was one of our Disney VHSs. And like all of those bad boys, I have seen this movie a million times. <laughs> I'm sure you've seen it more than I have. I definitely have seen it more than you have, but I really liked this movie quite a bit as a kid. I have certainly seen this more than Fantasia. Yeah. As much as I've seen Fantasia several times, I talked, you know, in that episode, we talked about how I wasn't as familiar with it. But we didn't have Fantasia on VHS, so it didn't live in the playroom with the VHS movies. Fantasia was on a DVD with the grown-up movies. (laughs) That's exactly correct. As a grown-up movie, make my music. More accessible. Yeah. Literally. Yeah. I could access it with my grubby little hands. Yeah. But, uh, so I've seen this movie a million times. Watching it, it was really nice to get that hit of nostalgia. Good. I was surprised. I was doing a little preliminary research before watching the movie, and I was surprised because people mostly don't like this. Huh. Now. People are mostly like, this is very bad. And yeah. I was like, oh, come on. I love Make My Music. And I watched it, and I'm like, I understand why people say this. I don't agree. (laughs) It might be mostly nostalgia talking. I think, honestly, I think even after this most recent watch, I think I liked this more than you. It's possible. We'll find out. In in mere moments. Yeah. (laughs) But but yes, I definitely noticed flaws in it as an adult. (laughs) I didn't notice as a kid. Yeah. For example, the reason I could only remember like four or five segments is because there are only four or five segments worth remembering. (laughs) It's true. Only four or five that have actual plot. Yes. But I I like it. I'm going to bat for this movie. Casey <laughs> at the bat is a short in this movie. Yes. Um, and that's that. So this is, this is the first movie we've had where I have more of a connection to it than you do. Yep. And that's fun. That'll become more common when we get into like the 2000s, but not for... Uh, <laughs> who knows? Who knows how long it's gonna take us to get there? We're recording right. this podcast slow. This is a leisurely podcast. A leisurely walk through the Disney animated canon. So, uh, the background on this movie—it's pretty much what you would expect if you've been listening to the show up to this point. As we know, in the wartime era, Disney Studios had no money, uh-huh. and most of their talent had left, and the studio was basically requisitioned by the United States government, and they were in dire straits. At the point of this movie, the war was over, but when it was released... Yes, and that is very important. This movie did come out in 1946. Make My Music is the first post-war movie, and basically the idea was they took... All of the half-formed ideas for shorts and movies even that they had wanted to do and just these various random ideas that were around the studio that they couldn't work on because they had to make propaganda Uh and tried to combine it into a movie. And a lot of it was Walt loved Fantasia. We talked about how Fantasia... Up to his death, that was Walt's favorite movie the studio ever did. And he was so depressed, not only by everything else that's happening, but by the fact that Fantasia bombed. He really wanted to do another one of those, but he, you know, understood the need to make money. And so the idea was, let's do Fantasia. We'll even reuse the Blue Bayou sequence was a sequence that was cut from Fantasia. Yeah. But the big difference is we are going to get some of the most popular stars and musicians of the day, and we are going to do popular music. We're going to do stuff that people are familiar with, thinking that the classical music was what 
turn people away. Which, as we <laughs> talked about, was kind of true, but it was much more just, like, bad timing. Yeah, there was bad timing. There was expensive ticket prices. So Make Mine Music is pretty literally budget Fantasia with yeah. what was at the time modern music, which is, you know, funny to think now. <laughs> it's true. Because as maybe, a kid, you know, I'm watching this and I'm like, this is so old. Yeah, and maybe that's the reason people don't like it as much now is because it was the popular music and the popular musicians of the 40s. And this is no longer that. <laughs> and also because Fantasia is like accessible now, you know, yeah. I think a lot of people saw this who probably hadn't seen Fantasia and were like, you know, oh, wow, this is such a cool idea. Yeah. Now you you kind of have the superior version of this on hand. Yeah. And despite my fondness for Make My Music, I mean, there's there's no denying Fantasia is so much better. Well, yeah. And, and not just like because it had more money, like the idea for it is better. The execution mm. of it is better. The organization of shorts is better. The shorts themselves are largely better. The animation is better. Right. But that's that's especially like that's the that's the wartime stuff. Right. Um, I do think people are really mean to this movie now. Mean to this movie. I mean, it's a Disney corporation. <laughs> They're going to be fine. But people really hate on this movie. And I feel like you have to take it kind of for what it is. Right. What would have made Fantasia 2... If he could have. I mean, oh, definitely. That, that was literally what he wanted to do after Fantasia was make more Fantasia segments. Yeah. But nobody watched it. Nobody liked it. A war happened. <laughs> Even if you like hate this movie, I just don't think you can blame it on the people who made it, who come across as like people who are really trying hard to yeah. make something good with yeah. what they have, which is nothing. Right. We're doing the best we can. The movie cost $1.35 million to make. It made a little over $3 million, supposedly. Well, there you go. So, you know, it did all right. Like most of these wartime movies, it kept the lights on, which yep. is what it needed to do. It yep. was actually quite well critically received at the time. Okay. Because people were mostly like, it's these musicians I like <laughs> with fun animation. Great. Woo-hoo. 10 out of 10. Critics liked the comedy of it. They liked the visual inventiveness. It's kind of the opposite of Fantasia where at the time people loved it. Now it's kind of flipped the other way. All right. I promise we could stop talking about Fantasia. Probably. <laughs> Another interesting fact about this movie It's a very important piece of history because it was screened at the first ever Cannes Film Festival. Ooh. In 1946 is where it premiered, along with, you know, a a bunch of other movies, including Jean Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast, La Belle et la Bête, from 1946, which, if anyone listening hasn't seen, you should Mm -hmm. see it, because that is an incredible movie. It's your dad's favorite version of Beauty and the Beast. Make My Music One... An award for best animation design. Imagine that. (laughs) You know, as like one of the only animated movies there, if not the only animated movie there. But hey, it won that. Still an award. Which is, you know, it may be kind of needed because this was the first Disney movie not to get nominated for any Academy Awards. All the others had been at least nominated for music Hmm. and or had even won for music. Yeah. But this one did not, despite being really music focused. Definitely. The belief at the time is just that the Oscars were sick of Disney and felt he was phoning it in. Eh, I I can see why 
they would think that, but also they'd just be like that. Yeah, I mean, the, I, I mentioned the Oscars mostly as like a point of historical interest, not as a we should put any stock in what these elderly ghouls have to say about anything ever. Exactly. So yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of stuff we could talk about with the people who were involved in this movie, but it feels like it kind of makes the most sense to talk about that as we go through segments. Oh, for sure. Definitely. And other than that, the only really interesting thing I have to talk about right now is the home video release. Yeah, we're gonna have to talk about that. It was first released on Laserdisc in Japan in 1985. Oh yeah. <laughs> Laserdisc. Nothing the Japanese people wanted more than a laser disc of Make My Music. <laughs> but then it was released on VHS and DVD in the United States in the year 2000 as part of the Walt Disney Gold Classic Collection line. Which is what we had the VHS of, and which is the DVD we had to purchase just now, too. Yes, yes, this movie has never been released on Blu-ray anywhere. It has never gotten a later DVD release in the United States. Yeah. In some other countries got later DVD releases. And it is not on Disney+. And nobody is quite sure... Why? It's true. Couldn't find any information why. This just feels like one of those movies that somebody, like, and you get these, one of our bonus episodes is one of these, that it's like, I don't know, somebody at Disney has a vendetta against this movie. <laughs> I almost wonder, like, within Disney Studios, it was pretty not liked at the time. Like, a lot of the people who worked on it were disappointed. We've talked about how Walt and Roy Disney were disappointed in basically everything they had to put out at this time. So I don't know, maybe they're like, oh, this this is the bad one. But it's like, <laughs> Black Cauldron is on Disney+. Plus. I know. Chicken Little's on Disney+. Plus. Dinosaur's on Disney+. Plus. This, is, this is not the worst. I have no idea. It's very strange that it's the only one not on Disney+. Plus. I don't remember this being a problem with the VHS, but of course it's been a long time since we would have watched that. We don't even have a VCR anymore. But this DVD, they did not modify it very well for widescreen. <laughs> Basically the top and bottom of the images were cut off so that it could fill the screen. And it was um, unpleasant. <laughs> let's talk about the movie and let's start by talking about this. This DVD so, so, so sucks. I know. You and I both bought it because it was not on Disney Plus. Yeah. And because the DVD is A, for some reason, still in print. <laughs> this exact same 2000 release updated in no way at all. And B, it was very cheap. Yes. And again, I was feeling like make my music. I'll own that. That's a, that's a classic. Yeah, but it's a... Uh... It's not real great to watch on this DVD version. DVD is horrible. Number one, <laughs> they cut out the first segment, which they we'll talk did. about in a moment. They cut out seven minutes of footage. Mm -hmm. They edited some other stuff. The worst thing is the aspect ratio, where what they have done is they have cut off the top and bottom of the box. Come on, just give me letterboxing on the sides and make it the right aspect ratio so I can see the whole picture. Yes, kids don't care. Adults can deal with it. Right. It's, it's, this was, this was though the beginning of like D&D, D&D, <laughs> digital and discs. Yeah, 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 yeah. This was though at the beginning of DVDs, like this is what we were doing. It was all this terrible widescreen, even with VHS, you know, if something, it was the other way, if something was in a widescreen format, right, we were going right. to cramp it into a box. Like the idea of movies being like, historical artifacts that you should try to release 
in the version in which they came out is is kind of something more recent and is also not something the Disney company has ever bought into, <laughs> I think. As you see with all the Disney Plus releases where they're doing ridiculous stuff, like yeah. the release of Splash, where they added CGI hair to a person <laughs> to cover up because, because mom, you could see a naked butt. It's true, but now you can't because it has creepy hair CGI'd on it. <laughs> I've watched that movie on Disney+. Oh, you, Plus. you watched the Disney Plus Splash? We did, and it's not right. <laughs> they also added Grunkle... They, like, changed Grunkle Stan's hat in some episodes of Gravity Falls for <laughs> some reason. <laughs> Obviously, there was the whole Simpsons aspect ratio controversy, which they've fixed now, but in the most petty way possible, where you yeah. have to go into, like, five different option menus deep <laughs> to find the watching original aspect ratio. I w here's one thing, though. I mean, so many of the segments from this movie have been released in other ways, like they would have them as part of TV segments or include them on other showings. They would show some bits maybe as shorts before other movies. Like, they never felt like this movie should always be whole and intact. <laughs> it's true. I mean, that is why they made and released these package films was because they never intended for the films to have multiple theatrical releases. But yeah. They could release the shorts over and over again, which mm -hmm. they absolutely did with this. Mm -hmm. And you're correct that they have appeared in a bunch of TV programs. But again, it's especially strange because everything else is on there. Even if you just scan this horrendous DVD. <laughs> Maybe they're trying to figure out how to fix it back to good. And they can't find the original print or something. I mean, the actual Disney vault, not the quote unquote Disney vault, which is their thing where they're like, oh, we're only releasing some movies at certain times to drive up artificial scarcity. For, yeah. For no reason. Well, I mean, for the reason of making more money, but money. it's dumb. But the actual, you know, archives where they keep this stuff, it, it's supposed to have a reputation for, like, they preserve things extremely well. Yeah. So I feel like there must be a good print of Make My Music somewhere, I would think. Who knows? Maybe someday we'll get the story. Maybe. But uh, for now, all we have is this rancid DVD. <laughs> and the probably, I would imagine... That the Laserdisc release is uh, is probably better. Or the VHS release. Well, and some of the releases in other countries are not edited. So they might be better as well. Right. I don't know what the aspect ratio is like. True. On, like, the UK. There was a 2013 UK DVD that was uncensored and unedited in that sense. But I don't know what the aspect ratio was. Who knows? I would hope better. I would also hope better. UK, I, ho I hope you got... A good one. <laughs> this is a musty, musty <laughs> DVD package. Can't recommend it on any level. But the movie itself starts, uh, we get the little Make My Music song, uh -huh. which I remembered very well. It's fun credits. We're on a building. It looks like you're going into a theater, but it's like, it's hip. You know, it's, it's it's a city skyline and all the buildings light up. Yeah. And there is like a little book that says Make Mine Music. Oh, yeah, that's true. I forgot. There is a book. It's a mm -hmm. book movie. It's a book movie. Book status. True. I didn't even make note of the book. Well, here's why I made note of the book. Originally, the book said a musical fantasy in 10 parts. Yes. But on this DVD, it just says musical fantasy. They've also, because I looked them up side by side, 
they have changed the background color of the book and they have like obviously scribbled over where it says in 10 parts. <laughs> obviously, if you know it's supposed to be there. Yeah. It just, they, they didn't even edit it in a way that's remotely convincing. But they had to bad. remove where it said in 10 parts because people would be like, hey, there are only nine. <laughs> I paid for a full 10 parts. <laughs> this DVD is $9.99. It's a dollar a part. <laughs> what is this? Do you want to talk about the DVD we watched first, or should we slide in the missing segment here? Let's go ahead and put in the missing segment here because it's the first segment in the original movie. And, you know, that's what we're talking about. So the first segment is The Martins and the Coys, a rustic ballad. I do like how all of the segments... Well, almost all of the segments have a blank in front of them. Yeah. Like Martins and Coys is a rustic ballad. The Whale Who Wanted to Sing at the Met is an opera. Casey at the Bed is a musical recitation. I had noted that The Whale Who Wanted to Sing at the Met is opera pathetique. <laughs> but yes, it is. It is an opera pathetique. Thank you for, for clarifying that because that's, that is an amazing detail. <laughs> That I would not have wanted to miss. Well, yeah, so Martins and Coys is a rustic ballad. It's seven and a half minutes long. You can find it on... Shh, but yes. <laughs> yeah, we both watched this on oh, a... You can, you can watch it on the internet. Yes, uh, Mom and I both watched it on totally legal websites. Secret Disney Plus. If you put in a password into the search <laughs> bar, it pops up. Don't worry about where we watched this, but we did. And, uh... I don't know. What what did you think of it? I have actually seen The Martins and the Coys several times. I will say I saw it when I was young enough. I had not really, I hadn't learned about the feud between the Hatfields and McCoys in history class or anything yet. And so when I did first hear about the Hatfields and McCoys, I thought they got the name wrong <laughs> because it's the Martins. And see, you can actually sing the song and put in McCoy if you're not thinking about it, you know, so, you know, if you aren't like, watching it right then, so, you know, it's the Martins and the Coys, but you could say the Martins and McCoys, it still, you know, scans. Right. So I was like, what are you talking about, Hatfields? <laughs> yeah, I, on the other hand, don't believe I had seen this until we watched it for this episode because it was not on the VHS nope. release, as we said. Yep. Not included because of comic gunplay. Yeah, it, it was... <laughs> Cut out because there is a lot of shooting. And let's be honest, mass death. Mass death. I mean, obviously, I've, like, throughout this whole podcast, I've been an advocate for leave everything how it was. Even the stuff that is actually objectionable, like the racist stuff. I would rather just have the movie be as close to the movie it was when it came out. Yeah. And, you know, if it's something problematic, that's when you put up that disclaimer about, outdated cultural depictions or yeah. you have a little introduction like a warner brothers is doing with some of its movies now mm -hmm. they'll have like an introduction by a film historian being like this is why this movie is important yep. but also problematic i always thought this was a very funny short when i was a kid especially i thought it was hilarious i didn't love this short but it is like it's a strange one to cut because the gun violence is it's not like gun violence. No, no, it's it's just so ridiculous. It's not in the remotely realistic. But basically, right. it's the story of these two families, the Martins and the Coys, who are having a feud. The Martins are wearing blue. The Coys are wearing red. It is obviously based on the Hatfields and McCoys. Basically, the jokes are like, der her, der her, I'm a hick, hillbilly, etc. Yeah. I, I was amused at the beginning 
one of the coys is uh like he's he's sleeping and breathing and a bunch of flies fly into his breath and they die. <laughs> yeah. There's some fun visual stuff like that. Grandpa Koi, while drunk, steals eggs from the Martins. This leads to a huge feud. There's a bunch of ridiculous, just an insane amount of gunfire making huge clouds of smoke. Yep. By the way, so the singers, this is a group called the King's Men. Yeah. This is the King's Men Quartet, comprised of Ken Darby, Rad Robinson, John Dodson, Bud Lynn. A very popular group at the time. Which is, you can kind of say about all of these. Right. I, I couldn't find too much about them now, but they, they did some music for uh, other Walt Disney movies. Mm-hmm. They were involved with Dumbo. Yep. Which we, uh, we I believe we talked about them in that episode. They were involved with Song of the South, which we definitely did not talk about. They also <laughs> uh, were involved in Pinocchio and Bambi. So they're, they're singing songs all over these movies. Yeah. Ken Darby is also involved in the next segment. Yes. And uh, they're, they're singing a song and it's very... So um, now everybody is dead except for one person on each side. So I guess if we want to have a mom status, the mom status is I guess she's dead along with everyone else. Although you don't see any women other than this next upcoming character, Grace Martin is the last Martin who is left. And she's really the only woman you see of the Martins and Coys. As throughout much of this movie, you know, the men are weird little goblins. <laughs> and Mary is like a beautiful, fairly realistic woman. Grace. Grace. Why did I think it was Mary? I have no idea. Her name is Grace. Okay. Well, anyway, Jennifer <laughs> um, is the surviving Martin. And Henry Coy is the surviving Coy. He looks, the way he's drawn makes him look like he hasn't got a single brain in his head. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? I like that assessment. He also is drawn much more realistically. Basically, I would say he and uh, Susan look like they're actually (laughs) the same species and they don't look like they could possibly be related to the rest of their family. Who are now sitting as little ghosts on clouds watching them. And commentating. Yes. He sees her. And she sees him. Ah. So then, of course, they're in love and they have to get married. Um, And the... The other family members who are all dead now are like, no, the the singers say that, like, you can hear their ghostly cusses for miles <laughs> or something like that. But ghostly cusses, I wrote down. Yep. Yep. That's a that's a good phrase, by the way. So this is at five minutes into this, uh, you know, seven minute short. Then then there is two minutes of a dance square dance for the wedding party for two minutes. Yep. Yep. It goes on. It sure does. (laughs) And then they drive off. And I have to say, like I said, I didn't enjoy this short too much. So much of the humor is just Hicks are dumb, which is a little lazy. But I really, really didn't like this punchline. I don't know how you felt about it. The punchline is that now that they're married, they're fighting all the time. And so... She's throwing him out of the house and um, he tries to come back in. She He runs into her fist. She's throwing all the dishes out at him kind of thing. So basically they're feuding as a married couple now. Right. They're continuing the feud and them ghosts don't cuss no more. Yeah. They're like, this is great. I mean, I did like that she's getting the best of the fight. <laughs> sure. Because as you say, he's a potato man. <laughs> 
Um, I thought it was silly. I don't remember even thinking it was... When I was a kid, it was just like, haha, that's so silly. Now it's a little bit more... Mm, it would almost be funnier if they were... I don't know. It would be funnier if they were not fighting. It would be fun. I think it would just have been fine if they ended it at... Right, right at that five minute mark. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I I agree, which is what I thought was going to happen. But again, I'm like checking that time. I'm like, hmm? well, there's surely there will be more than this square dance. No, nope. there was not. Not uh, much. This is partially a generational thing, but I just I don't find those jokes where it's like the the joke is marriage is terrible. Mm-hmm. I don't find them that funny in, in general, right? Where it's just yeah. like, ah, you old ball and chain or ah, I hate my wife. Right. Like every right. boomer comedian. <laughs> Those are not so funny. I think I always interpret it as I've read stories or whatever, where the way the couple kind of expresses their love for each other is through kind of fighting. To me, it always kind of was like, this is how they, this is how they get on. Okay. Um, not that they hate each other. Not that they dislike each other, but that they like fighting with each other. You see what I mean? Sure. That's kind of how I interpreted it. I could get behind that. But I I mean, I don't know that's what the short is saying. But like, I don't know that's what it's saying either, but that's where I always like to take it. That's Martins and the Coys. Yep. Hatfield, the Hatfield-McCoy feud is also just kind of a strange thing to like make light of. You know, <laughs> Not that you can't... Make light of, not like ah cancel. You can only make jokes about certain things, whatever. Right. Just like I don't know, it's weird. Kind of a weird thing. It is a kind of a weird thing, but you know they got to get their inspiration somewhere, I guess. Here's what I will definitely say in favor of this short, which is that in our version of the movie, you start off with Blue Bayou, and then all the cats join in, and then without you. Mm-hmm. Which we'll all talk about in turn. But basically, here's what this adds up to. The first three shorts in our version are nothing. They don't really have stories. Two of them are completely forgettable and boring. Yeah, it's, Blue Bayou starts w- off very sleepy. So if you start with that one, ooh. One of the things we talked about with Fantasia is how well they place the shorts and how they put them in the perfect order. Yeah. Even though it's not actually a movie and they have nothing to do with each other, a perfect, satisfying arc. And like when you're getting maybe a little sleepy, here's something really exciting. Yeah. After something really exciting let's slow it down a bit like it it is a great concert in that sense this movie maybe not as good overall but at least starting with something that is exciting and funny and story driven would do a much better job setting the tone than blue bayou which like immediately turns you against the movie not even because it's horrible but because you go oh no is the whole movie gonna be this here's the thing in the original layout they're pretty much alternating a fast upbeats or at least plot driven song with a more quiet, sleepy animation driven kind of song. If you know what I mean? Like, yes, they kind of were going up and down and they went that way through the whole thing. And that works a lot better if you don't start down. Right. You got to start up. They really should have, if they were going to edit out the first short, they needed to rearrange the order of the shorts. So you were still starting with something up. I mean, they could have started with all the cats join in. Yeah. Anyway, but we're not talking about that one yet. It's time for Blue Bayou. Right. Okay. Uh, here's what there is to say about Blue Bayou. There's some very pretty watercolor backgrounds and there's a bird and it walks around for a little bit and then it sees another bird and that's the end. This one is subtitled 
a tone poem, and it is sung by the Ken Darby chorus, so there's Ken Darby again. Apparently the bird is an egret, which is a type of heron, which I could only find by looking it up online. This was the animation, though, that was originally intended for the song Claire de Lune in f- to be put into Fantasia. They just used the same animation and wrote a song that went with it. Yeah, the, this is a new song, Blue Bayou, and I couldn't sing you a note of it. No idea. I can't remember it at all. And, you know, you put Claire de Lune over this and you extend it to the length of a Fantasia short. I could see how this could be something. You might be able to see this with the Claire de Lune music as an extra on my Fantasia DVD, but I can't recall. I should have checked. By the way, speaking of uh, extras on DVDs, the (laughs) extras on this DVD, because I was like, oh, there's bonus features. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to find stuff about this movie. I would love to see some information. No, it's just three completely unrelated shorts. Yep. But yeah, that's really all I have to say about Blue Bayou also. So then all the cats join in. A jazz interlude. Yes, I definitely liked this one. Yeah. Both as a kid, I really liked it. Now I still really like it. Again, when it's the second one, it's still a bit of a problem. Because again, you're feeling like, is there going to be any like long short with a story? Yeah. But this, of course, the music for this was done by Benny Goodman Uh and his orchestra. Benny Goodman being one of the most famous jazz legends and one of the most famous band leaders of all time. Mm -hmm. I assume I don't need to do too much background on him, but he was active during this time. He was extremely famous. He was one of the most popular musical groups in the country. His group was one of the first integrated jazz groups in what was obviously a time of extreme racial segregation and uh his music is great and the music in this is great the singing is done by a group called the pied pipers Uh uh-huh and uh they were quite popular at the time not only for their own music but for collaborations with tommy dorsey and a little guy named frank sinatra (laughs) all these famous people so this is a really fun song it is and it's fun because it shows like 1940s teens i like i always like when you've got the pencil kind of drawing the action as you're watching it i always think that's very fun that's one of my favorite styles i agree i loved that in saludos amigos i love that in this yeah obviously yeah. the looney tune short duck amuck is like probably the most famous yeah. version of that yeah yeah so we have a pencil drawing in the images it's also drawing the colors despite uh-huh. this apparently being a, a number two pencil puts a coin in a jukebox he's having a fun time he calls up a girl and of course the phone line gets drawn as he's calling it's great yes he uh, holds up the phone to the jukebox he's like what do you think of this she's like sounds great she's all getting ready to go her little sister wants to come too she's like playing dress up trying to be an older girl that's fun her little sister's the breakout star of the short We love a cranky character. Yeah. They get into a car. The pencil doesn't finish drawing the car while they're driving away. So it has to draw a stop sign so it can finish drawing the car. I love that bit. It's a really great joke. It is a little weird that for, you know, such a such a swinging song, it's all white people in this short. I mean, I'm not surprised considering the context, like considering the time in which this came out. But a little weird. They go to the malt shop. And they're all dancing. Yep. Dance, dance, dance. We got a fun cast of characters. I did notice, you know, there's some cheapness here for sure. It's all flat colors. Yeah. There's no background. No, not really. To almost all of this. 
Which kind of makes sense. We like the pencil hasn't drawn it in. And also, <laughs> you made up that device, and it was probably so you could use solid color backgrounds. Right. All the characters have dot eyes, except for one just completely random guy who does have eyes with pupils. <laughs> I didn't who's notice just there that. For like a moment. It's it's quite interesting. It's quite strange. But there is. There's one guy who's got whites of his eyes. Yeah. Everybody else has dot eyes. Not like there's a huge plot here. Yeah. I mean, they're at the malt shop. They dance around. Uh, they make a big sandwich and everybody eats it. <laughs> <Some of> it. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, a, the pencil draws a girl with a really big butt and she looks off- offended, so it erases some of it. Yep. And then it just stops. There's no real ending. It's kind of like explode a little bit, like basically, boom, it's over. It's a fun interpretation yeah. of a enjoyable piece of music. For sure. It definitely is. And that's really all you need. Yeah. And then there's Without You. A ballad in blue. So this is a song that was sung by Andy Russell. Andy Russell was a Mexican-American singer. Yeah, looking him up was the most interesting thing about this segment. (laughs) He's an interesting guy. It is interesting that at this time in the 40s, attitudes toward Mexican-Americans were actually probably a little, like, better than they were now. If you look up the history of Mexican-Americans in the United States, we go through cycles. Yeah. So, like, in the uh, Great Depression, we were doing a ton of deportations. But then during the 40s... We liked him a lot, and obviously we have the Good Neighbor program yep. there in the army, and that's a big deal. And then in the 50s, we're deporting them en masse again, and you know, it goes back and forth, and we're definitely in a very bad period right now for that. For sure. But he was he was extremely popular at the, at the his, in his day. Um, yes, he was. And he would sing bilingual, both English and Spanish sometimes. Not all of his songs were that, obviously, but people really liked his style. Of course, his real name wasn't Andy Russell. It was Andre Rabago, I think. I thought we were done with the Spanish. I thought I could stop embarrassing myself. Nope. No! (laughs) Um, He was never, like, explicitly part of the Good Neighbor program, but he was definitely promoted as such. Like, he did a lot of tours in Latin America and in the United States that were meant to, you know, bridge the gap between both of them. He was seen as a singing ambassador. So this short, this is a... I miss you song, basically. I wrote down, it's another blue cartoon. <laughs> it, like, it really is. <laughs> because, I mean, it's it's subtitled The Ballad in Blue, but basically it's it's a very sad kind of song um, because I miss you, but you know, mm-hmm. I don't like being without you. So you get rain on the window, a willow tree, which is like sad, you know, sad everything. It starts with a goodbye letter. Yeah. And then we go to the rain on the window. And yeah, it's all this surreal, not even really surreal, It's but it's this, it's this sad imagery. There's yeah. a lake. Uh, and I, I didn't care, with, with respect to Mr. Russell, I, I didn't care for the song too much. Mm. I'm sure he has many other great songs right. that he made his name on. Right. I don't think this is one of them. It's, it's another very pretty short... I mean, the animation is kind of pretty to watch, but it's kind of forgettable also. I couldn't sing you a note of the song either. No, and then it ends on the the same window, but it's dark. Yep. Which is one thing I will say about this movie that we'll probably talk about throughout. It definitely has an undercurrent of sadness. It really does. And maybe that's related to, I wish we didn't have to do a package film. <laughs> 
I, I think it is. I, I truly, I think that it is <laughs> the kind of depression of the Disney studios at the time. Like, people weren't feeling good. And obviously, we've just had this war, and that's always a miserable nightmare for everyone. Like, I think even though they're trying to make a funny cartoon, like, sometimes the the sadness comes out. Yeah. And this is definitely one of those times. It's not like there's any resolution to this at all. It's just a literal portrait of misery. Uh-huh. Which, again, is fine if you have had the Martins and the Coys promising, <laughs> don't worry, there will be stuff that's funnier, there will be stuff that has more of a plot. Yeah. Us watching it. This is the part where I'm almost worried, like, is this whole thing bad? <laughs> Luckily, the next segment is Casey at the Bat. Which is, it, I think it's the funniest short. It's definitely the, the funniest short in the whole thing. I agree with that. And it's great. Is this one your favorite, do you think? I don't think it's my favorite, but I don't, I definitely think it's the funniest. It's hard. It's definitely hard for me to decide between this one and the one that I think is, that I picked as my favorite. I don't know if you want me to say now or not. No, 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 no. Let's let's wait for it. I, I mean, look, we can guess. We know you're an after you've gone Stan. <laughs> um, but no, yeah, Casey. At the, let me tell you, this short is so good it's that so good. I was I was looking something up. Obviously, I do a lot of research for the show, and I yeah. I was looking something up, and I needed to watch a little part of it, so I pulled it up on totallylegalwebsite.biz <laughs> and started watching just a piece of it, and I just sat and watched the whole thing again. Yep, it's so good. Jerry Colonna, who is the uh, narration for this one, and a little singing, does such a great job. Yes. Jerry Colonna is a musician and an actor and a comedian and a singer and a songwriter and a trombonist. <laughs> but really what he's known for is he was part of Bob Hope's very popular radio programs. And he was always the guy that they had do the wackiest characters. And if you look up a picture of him, he's got big old bug eyes and a walrus mustache. He had a catchphrase. He would ask, who's Yehudi, which is, uh, I had to read an entire Wikipedia article to understand it. <laughs> so let's just say this was funny in the 1930s and 40s. Okay, then. But he, like, he did improv. He was very, he was wacky. That that was his, like, comic persona. Yeah. And I didn't know any of this while we were watching it. I didn't remember who this guy was at all. But I wrote down, look up who the voice actor is in my notes <laughs> because he does such a good job and he's so funny. Yeah. So Casey and the Bat, I'll be, uh, again. Casey at the Bat. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Not and. So, so Casey... <laughs> <laughs> For the listener at home, mom just waved her hands like bat wings <laughs> to, to imply that Casey is friends with a flying mammal. <laughs> okay, okay, a little bit of breathing now. So Casey at the bat is obviously an extremely famous poem in the United States. The full title is Casey at the Bat, A Ballad of the Republic, sung in the year 1888. That's a very long name. It is a very long name, and it was indeed released in 1888. <laughs> it's been very popular, and even as a kid, maybe just because I liked this movie, like, I liked this poem. Yeah. I remember the school library had a book that was like, this poem 
but illustrated, you know, kind of a picture book. Uh-huh. And I would check it out frequently because I, I don't know. I like <laughs> this poem. It's, yeah, it's a good one. And it's, it's referenced in a ton of cartoons. Garfield and Friends has a horrendous parody of it. <laughs> What can you say? It has everything that Americans like. Sports, dudes, hubris, <laughs> attempted murder. Attempted murder. <laughs> it connects with people because it's like so true to the sport of baseball, uh-huh. which is still ingrained in American culture and in the American psyche, even though nobody likes baseball anymore. <laughs> I think there are definitely some people who like baseball. It's just not our family. Nope. Nobody likes baseball. <laughs> You're gonna get. It is, it, you're I, gonna get I, I, tweets. <laughs> I'm gonna get tweets. I'm being hyperbolic. I it know. is much less popular than it was. Exactly, that's true. And it is also uh, insanely corrupt. Yeah. But no, of course, and even like you know, I'm being snarky here. Like I have so many good memories of going to baseball games. Yeah. You don't have to pay attention to the actual baseball. Just hang out with people. Exactly. When it's not the Rona, I love going to the Lincoln Salt Dogs games here in town, and you know they're. I don't even know what league they're in, but they aren't even in the minor leagues. But like, I don't know. It is fun. It's a, it's a fun thing to do. Yeah. So Casey at the bat. They do change the text of the poem. They add to it. They change some of the words so it can fit into the whole thing isn't sung, but like it can fit into more of a musical musical cadence for the parts that are sung. Yeah. They also add a little music to the beginning and the end. Yeah. But it stays very true to the poem. Yep. I like the way it it sets everything up at first before you ever even see Casey with, you know, here's the score so far. Then these two guys get out. These two guys get accidental hits. So they end up on second and third. And of course, it's just silliness going on, right? It's just silliness throughout yes. the whole. I, I always thought it was hilarious. The part where the cover gets knocked off the ball. Like, I always thought, is that even a thing that could happen? <laughs> but it is. And the ball is just a scribble inside. Yes, it is a scribble. Casey at the Bat is another segment that I had seen many times before we got this movie. Oh, for sure. This one is on so many things. What I really like about this short is that all of the people in it are made out of rubber. <laughs> yeah. They really have so much fun with the character movements. They and do. this is where you remember the Disney animators were except for maybe with respect a few people like working on looney tunes but they were basically unmatched at this time and they are so good at comic movement and visual gags they are you can't really describe like some of the stuff that happens in this short but it's just so funny and so kinetic yeah the second guy who gets the hit um has this Big old long mustache, and they do so many jokes with the mustache. It's getting tangled up in the bat. He's using it to touch the base. Yes. It's... Um, I was wondering, having looked at Jerry Colonna, if his mustache was a little bit of an inspiration. Not that it's the same style at all, but who knows? They may just have been like, let's have him have a giant mustache. I really like the umpire who <laughs> is like a demon. Yes. Like he's, he's so scary looking and so, you're out! It's true. Strike one! It doesn't matter what he's saying. It's all in that really intense, loud voice. I also quite like the coach of Mudville, who is very <laughs> tiny, but also very aggressive. And when he goes up against the uh, umpire, it's really hilarious. I love the dork in the stands. I don't know how else you describe him. Oh, he's the one who's rooting for the other team. Yes. Which is Burbank, which is kind of a funny little in-joke. After Flynn and Blake uh, manage to, to get their hits, 
Flynn because, as you say, he has mustache happenings. Yeah. And uh, no hit Jimmy Lake because he gets his foot set on fire. Oh, yeah. I guess I got them out of order. Flynn is the first hit, not it's not fine. the second one. It's okay. Whatever. Hey, listener, if you were composing a tweet to correct us about the <laughs> Disney cartoon Casey and the Bat, maybe think about some stuff. Maybe go outside. Keep listening, though. But, <laughs> but take the podcast outside. Maybe think about it. But yeah, so uh, Flynn and No Hit Jimmy Lake, they uh, they get on to base. And that means, despite all odds... Casey. And there's a short little song about how popular he is, mostly with the ladies. Oh, yes. Casey's the guy with his eye on the ball. And also the ladies. Yes. He walks up with a fistful of a hundred bats. <laughs> Chooses just the one he likes best, which looks extremely tiny as it is in his gigantic hands. And this is part of where the DVD is at the worst, because it's constantly cutting off the top <sighs> of him because yes. he's so tall. It's And he's making so many funny facial expressions. <laughs> Come really on. Is. Uh, of course, everybody knows how good Casey is. So the pitcher is all sweating because he's nervous. The uh, catcher, when he's trying to signal the pitcher, braids his fingers, literally trying to signal. Yes. I love the braid. Flynn and Lake are, you know, doing all sorts of ridiculous dances of being off base, you yeah. know, ready to yeah, run. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, of course, the way the poem goes is Casey just ignores the first two balls because he's so cocky, and then he strikes out on the third one. Spoilers. Spoilers if you're a time traveler from 1887. <laughs> But I love how they do it in this one with this first ball where Casey pauses time. Yeah. Examines the ball in midair, picks it up, puts it back in midair, and then says, of course, that ain't my style. For strike two, he's reading Police Gazette, which was a detail I really liked. Police <laughs> Gazette was a magazine at this time. There's a great article. You can read about it on Cracked.com by Sean Baby, who is one of my favorite internet writers. But uh, basically, this is a magazine that is extremely inappropriate for children. <laughs> Yeah, it kind of looked that way. I mean, it has a, it definitely has a girl on the front. Yeah, I'm going to be careful here, but it is half girls and half aggressive violence. <laughs> so it's really funny to me with that context, which I'm sure the viewers at the time would have had. That's like, yeah. that's a joke for the adults. Uh-huh. Casey's reading Police Gazette. And as, you know, with the poem itself, this great language that is lasted for hundreds of years casey is all ready to go and it's all and the ball is thrown his I like the, i love that his lip is curled in a sneer that sneer on his lip yes a sneer curled casey's lip that's how the line goes yes that's actually uh, a little earlier oh, Here, you're the sneer right. is gone from casey's you're lip. right his teeth are clenched in hate he pounds with cruel violence his bat upon the plate i forgot to mention about the sneer earlier though because i love that drawing i used to try to do that with my lip again it's like the sneer curling casey's lip is just a phrase that's embedded in my brain and i love how they <laughs> interpret that stuff yes anyway I, agree. I love his ridiculous lip curling yeah but now the air is shattered by the force of casey's blow and i have to say even after this as many times as i've seen this short I got goosebumps <laughs> in that build up to the swing it's again i think it's the, the animation is good. The music is good. The Obviously, the voiceover the narration is, is tremendous. Amazing. 
And the language is so good. Like it is. It's a good poem, guys. It's a good poem. And I'm like, I know he misses it. (laughs) And then you get that lovely little song. Somewhere children play sweet. But there's no joy in Mudville. Mighty Casey has struck out. Casey is chasing the ball all over. It's on (laughs) the ground. He's trying to hit it with the bat. It's like jumping away. Yes, it's hilarious. And I, for some reason, I just really like the touch of it fades to black. And then uh, Jerry Colonna says, what do you know? The game is over. (laughs) Yeah, it's great. It's such a treat. And it's, you know, for again... Us watching it the way we were watching, it's so nice when you get to that one. It's like, oh, okay, okay, this movie is good. (laughs) Yeah. It's followed by two silhouettes, uh, in which there are two silhouettes. The end. (laughs) This is, I'm not even sure how you're supposed to say this, ballad, ballet? (laughs) It's like the word ballad, but with an E on the end. Ballade? (laughs) Something like that. Uh, Dinah Shore sings this she was a very famous singer and actress and television personality she was the most popular female vocalist in the 1940s she was also one of the first successful solo artists yeah that was interesting interesting i hadn't thought about that but musicians up to this point are mostly bands yeah bands and groups i mean even most of the ones we've had so far are quartets or Exactly. But she was a successful solo singer. Mm -hmm. I thought this was interesting, by the way. A lot of the musicians involved in this, uh, (laughs) Jewish immigrants. Yeah, yeah, they were. I mean, that's just how it is in the showbiz. You can't succeed on Broadway. If you don't have any Jews. But uh, yeah, so Dinah Shore sings this song. I do actually remember a little bit of how this song goes. You were talking about, you don't even remember this one. And I haven't remembered the tune for those other two. But <laughs> this one, at least I remember the two silhouettes. Da, 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 da. Of the, what, you know, we can derisively call the boring segments. <laughs> the segments that are more musical and don't really have any plot that are right. also slow. Right. This is my favorite one by far. This is the one I fe- felt like I remembered the most. Yeah. Agreed. The live-action rotoscoped silhouettes Uh is a cool idea. For some reason, as a kid, I definitely remember liking the little cupids. (laughs) For some reason, the cupids stuck in my memory so much. Yeah? Are we going to try to say the names of the ballet dancers? (laughs) No. (laughs) Their first names are Tanya and David. I'll try it, but I'm going to screw it up. I have screwed up every single last name I've tried to say on this podcast. So, as always... (laughs) I'm a dingus, but David Lachine, maybe, and Tanya Ryabuchinskaya, maybe. Maybe. They were apparently also the live-action models for Fantasia Dance of the Hours, the hippo and the alligator, potentially. Oh, that's very cool. So, you know, back to Fantasia again. Right, that's a much better, <laughs> that's a much better uh, short in every way. <laughs> But this one is also, this this one's pretty good. Like you said, the silhouettes of the two ballet dancers are interacting with animated things, which is very cool. Like when she's waving her arms like ballet dancers do, they're having animated like stars or flowers or things happening with her hands or her hands are doing things as opposed to it just being nothing is going, you know, right? Just waving around. (laughs) 
Right. And it's, you know, following up on Three Caballeros, we still have the fun. Like, we, we're still trying to mix live action and animation in interesting ways. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. But there's not too much to say about it. No, but it's it's a cool one to watch. It's definitely less boring than the other two slow ones. Mostly the even ones are the slow, sad ones. Not 100%, but... um. Most of them. The odd ones are the better ones, usually. <laughs> yep. Uh, and that's certainly true of this next one. Certainly another classic short. Yes. Peter and the Wolf. Yes. A fairy tale with music. This is my favorite. Interesting. I think this one's my favorite that's, segment. That's totally fair. It's totally fair. It's a very good one. Yep. This one, of course, the the featured performer is my main man, Mr. Sterling Holloway. Yeah. Professor Holloway, once again. <laughs> is he in all of these package movies? I hope he is. I, I, I would love so. that. We'll have to wait and see. I don't recall him being in the next one, but I I don't recall. So he's narrating Peter and the Wolf, which, of course, is an incredibly famous piece of Soviet propaganda. That's right, people. <laughs> people don't know this. So he's a, a famous composer. I'm going to say wrong, but I think it's Sergei Prokofiev. Your guess is as good as mine. Great. And of course, it is a piece of classical music, or as it was known at the time, music. Right. That was composed in 1936. So it is actually somewhat recent to this time. And uh, it is designed for children. Mm -hmm. From its inception, it was designed to start with a narrator explaining all of the instruments. There are different characters represented by each instrument. That's cool that it was always designed to be that way. And there is a there is a narrator describing the story as all the instruments, you know, come in and they do things. And it is the story of Peter, who originally is a young Soviet pioneer <laughs> who ignores the stubbornness of the un-Bolshevik older generation represented by the grandfather <laughs> and represents the triumph of man taming nature represented by the wolf. <laughs> Some of that is lost in the Disney version. <laughs> but it does hew pretty close to the original story. Obviously, there's many different English translations uh -huh. of this, and I'm translations in other languages as well. And this is another thing that, like, I have always liked and liked a lot as a kid. I, I had the CD. Uh -huh. When I was a little older than this, I'm sure Make My Music was probably my first introduction to Peter and the Wolf, but when I was a little older... I had a CD of Sean Connery narrating it, which you can actually find in its entirety on YouTube. Now, if anyone <laughs> listening wants to hear that version, uh, I still have that CD somewhere. But uh, I, I listen to that a lot. I love Peter and the Wolf. Yep. Come on. It's, it's, it's great. a great introduction to music for kids. It is. And it is also a genuinely good piece of classical music. Yeah. It's an enjoyable song. And it's a really good way to introduce to kids or anybody the idea of different musical instrumental themes representing the characters in the story and telling the story with those themes. Yes. So this version is narrated by Sterling Holloway, yep. who, of course, gives us the down low. Strings, Peter. Flute, Sasha the Bird. Oboe, Duck. Clarinet, in a very low register. Ivan the cat. Bassoon. Grandpa. Kettle drums. The hunter's guns. And uh, I think... Uh, oh, whoa, what's this coming in? We got mom status. Um, so the mom is unmentioned, but Peter lives with his grandfather, so we can speculate that potentially his mother is dead. I mean, it is a Disney movie, so that's <laughs> pretty... Uh, 
pretty easy speculation. Or potentially Peter has gone to visit his grandfather who lives out in the village. You know, maybe his parents live in the city and he's gone to visit Grandpapa in the village. I don't know. But I think mom's status is dead. <laughs> Great. Believe what you want. <laughs> <laughs> you really milked that one. Goodness. Well, you said um, to fill the time. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so, also, after the kettle drums, I love... As much as I'm annoyed that they don't mention the wolf is represented by French horns as a French horn player, and as the fact that French horns are always relegated to being the instrument nobody remembers, <laughs> we exist. Yeah. But I do actually like how Sterling says, and there is also a wolf. Oh, and then you get that incredibly, you know, dramatic. It's kind of symbols are part of the wolf's song too, but definitely the bit. horns. You see him here only in shadow and footprints and you see him on the other side of trees and then he turns around and roar and it's, there's some genuine menace to this short. Oh, I definitely yeah. as a kid felt that there was genuine menace. The wolf is scary. He is, especially because he's like right up in your face. When he's like growling at the screen. I definitely remember when I saw this as a kid finding the wolf a little scary. And again, this music is not only targeted to kids, but it's like primal themes. Yeah. Like, there's just something about that dun, 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 dun uh, for the wolf that like, I don't care how old you are, it gets to you. It gets to me. Yep. But so then we are introduced to the actual story. We see little Peter armed to the teeth. <laughs> with a pop gun. <laughs> and Grandpapa says, stay in. I can literally hear the music in my head as we're describing uh -huh. it. Uh-huh, yeah. Even though this is a shortened version of the song, because, of course, the actual original piece of music lasts 25 minutes, and the short does not. Does not, no. But that's okay. Yeah. Mm. Grandpapa tells him to stay in, don't go out. It's dangerous out there. There's a wolf. And Peter's like, say... Peter, Peter wants to capture the wolf. He imagines himself having captured the wolf. He takes his pop gun back from Grandpapa in a fun little bit of business, and he sets out. Yep. And he meets Sasha, the bird who is excitable and a little forgetful. I do think um, it's funny how Sasha looks bald, except for when he wears his big, tall Russian hat. I also think it's funny, or at least interesting, this is the only character, I believe, who Sterling actually, like, says lines for kind of that's everybody true. else he's like you know peter thinks or peter says uh with sasha he there are multiple places where he's actually saying what sasha is supposed that's to true. be saying i don't know if there's any significance there other than like they kind of almost make sasha the main character <laughs> a little bit i have to say when i was a kid i thought sasha was a girl the name Sasha sounded right. more like a girl's name to me and the flute being a like you know high-pitched yes. instrument Sounded like a girl thing. I don't know. I just always thought Sasha was a girl. Um, and no, it makes sense. Watching it now, I'm like, why did I think that? Well, because I was a dumb little kid. <laughs> and we're doing a lot of like, we see what we think is the shadow of the wolf, but it's actually Sonia the duck. Right. Who also imagines capturing the wolf. And then there's, <laughs> is this the wolf stalking in the grass? No, nope. nope, it's just Ivan who is, you know, stalking Sasha the bird. Yes. Because cats do that. Does try to eat Sasha, but they get that figured out. And then they're creeping in size order, which is a good visual. Ivan finds the wolf. Panic ensues. Oh, Ivan yes. actually walks underneath the wolf. <laughs> 
Sonya gets hit on the head and is like entranced <laughs> and is almost eaten. Uh-huh. And as as mom knows, nothing scared me more really like up until I was 10 at least. Nothing scared me more than like hypnotism or anything having to do with mind control or brains uh-huh. or anything like that. Brains. <laughs> Even to the point where in E.T., when uh, E.T. and the boy have, like, a mind connection, that freaked me out. I was like, I don't like that. It's true. This definitely, when I was seeing, like, there's a few times in here where people are kind of, like, almost entranced, like Sonya here, right? Uh. Where she's stumbling around a bit and almost gets eaten by a wolf. That definitely, like unlocked some, <laughs> some childhood feelings of like oh yeah that was it wasn't so upsetting that i was not gonna watch the movie but right. that was definitely of that vein ah even though it's more of my brain's been rattled and i'm confused than am i being mind controlled or anything i just didn't like it i didn't <laughs> like people having full control of their faculties yep but sonia is not eaten yet and <laughs> i love that peter actually does fire the cork gun at the wolf Fully hit him. In the nose. It just does nothing at all. Of course not. It's a court gun. There's more sort of peril and Sonya gets at Sonya seems to be dead. It's true. They even show Sonya goes into a tree and the wolf sticks his mouth in the tree and comes out with a bunch of feathers on his mouth and licking his chops like, yum, yum, I just ate up Sonya. And you (laughs) even see an image of Sonya Going up into heaven as an angel. So a lot of people going to heaven in this. Again, a lot of people dying and going to heaven. Which maybe I'm reading too much into it, but does kind of feel like a war thing. Yeah. The rest of them are hiding up in a tree, trying to get away from the wolf. Stay away from the wolf. Sasha cries a single tear that freezes and then decides he will avenge his friend. And he's just like beating up on parts of the wolf. (laughs) uh, Sterling Holloway goes, how about some of this, eh? And what about this, eh? Do you think maybe there's something going on between Sasha and Sonya? (laughs) (laughs) They are described as playmates. Yeah, yeah. I'm just wondering because Sasha's very affected. It's, It's true. Sonya's also like, t- what, eight times his size? <laughs> they are both birds, though. They are both birds. <laughs> you know, I don't think we need, to, I don't think they need to put labels on it. That's what I think. However, while uh, Sasha is, is, you know, trying to attack the wolf, annoying the wolf, right? Then we get a look out, please, for overconfidence. And <laughs> Sasha crashes into a tree. Yep, more crashing into things and getting your head injured. Lots of head injury, too. But uh, while the wolf is about to eat Sasha, Ivan ties him up. There's business with rope in a tree. Yep. The wolf still ends up on top. They got to try a lot of stuff to beat the wolf. It's true. It's not just like, oh, we found the thing. And so Sasha flies off to find the hunters. I love how when Sasha is riding in the snow, Sterling Holloway spells out the word wolf in English, but Sasha is writing it in Russian. W-O-L-F with Russian characters. Yeah. Uh, the, the three hunters here also known as the Cossacks, are Misha, Yasha, and Vladimir. Vladimir is in the middle, yes. and he's about two inches tall. Half the size of the others. And they run off 
to save Peter, but Peter has captured the wolf on his own. Yep. We don't know how it happened. It all happened off screen, but Peter has the wolf completely tied up and is sitting on him like a swing. And Ivan, I should say. Maybe Ivan helped. We have ourselves a big party, and this is, again, one of those like lines from this movie that has embedded itself in my brain. Oh, happy day. I think I'll say that again. Oh, oh happy, happy day. day. Yes. The wolf, by the way, is not dead. No. Uh, because it's a Disney cartoon. He's just tied up, and don't worry about what's going to happen to him. Definitely not. Uh, but Sasha is crying, very upset. At the loss of Sonia. But she's alive. She was hiding in the tree. The whole time. Yay! And for anyone who doesn't know, in the original composition, Sonia does indeed appear to be dead and is indeed revealed to be alive at the end, but she is alive in the wolf's stomach. (laughs) That's messed up. With either, if the wolf is alive, the implication is that she's just going to live there or... In the versions where the wolf dies, the implication that they will cut her out of the stomach. I guess. I think I saw that in the original, they put the wolf in the zoo or something. Yes. And Sonya just lives in its stomach. That is correct. Messed up. (laughs) In this uh, Disney-fied version, (laughs) she is just in a tree. (laughs) They have a nice reunion and they run off into the sunset. And it's just a good, it's a, you know, it's a good emotional arc. Yep. Everybody lives. This segment, both in terms of the quality of animation and, like, the storytelling and how well it uses the music, this short, you honestly could slip right into Fantasia, and I think most people would not notice. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, if this had been in Fantasia, you wouldn't be like, oh, this is way worse. (laughs) I mean, it wouldn't quite feel like it would fit because of the narration, And there isn't any narration on the actual Fantasia segments, but I see what you mean for sure. After that is After You've Gone. After You've Gone. Which again features the Goodman Quartet. Yeah, this one's subtitle is, And Now the Goodman Quartet. Yes. Because, you know, if you've got living legends in the studio, you might as well have them do two songs. For sure. I cannot remember anything about the actual song for this one. But it is a fun little animation segment. Yeah, I mean, the song itself is just just sounds like a jam session or something. Yeah. I apologize. I don't know enough about jazz if this is an <laughs> actual song. Um, again, don't tweet. But it starts off with all these fun abstract shapes, zigzags and bubbles. They turn into instruments. Yep. There are six anthropomorphic instruments. Piano, bass, snare drum, bass drum, cymbal and clarinet. And they're dancing and shrinking and growing. They run along an infinite piano road. The bass and the clarinet get into kind of a fight. Yep. They have to run from a huge drum. The clarinet turns into a fish for a bit. I like the hands that turn into like dancing ladies. Yes. That's funny. This is, I I don't think we need to dwell on it because there's really not much to say, but this is a really fun interlude. I like it a lot. Yep. Of the uh, even numbered ones, I, I probably still like two silhouettes better than this one, but this one's a fun one. I don't know. I don't know which of those. Maybe this one a little more. I, I don't know. I kind of like it all. Honestly, Martins and the Coys, Blue Bayou, Without You, those are the only ones I don't like. And even then, Without You, I kind of enjoy how bleak it is. Martins <laughs> and the Coys, the opposite, I enjoy how energetic it is. I guess Blue Bayou is the one I just don't care about at all. <laughs> I really don't. There's yeah. Neither the music nor the animation of Blue Bayou interests me at all. Yeah. This one at least has a fun, fun stuff going on. And at the end, it all goes down the drain. (laughs) 
yes, this this one's totally fun, and it's kind of what the shorter shorts of this movie should be, yeah. you feel like. Then we have A Love Story, Johnny Fedora and Alice Blue Bonnet. Yep, sung by the Andrews sisters. Even I had heard of the Andrews sisters, <laughs> so I imagine many of our listeners have as well. But in case you haven't, they were a close harmony singing group. Yep. They kind of popularized their like style, which is close harmony boogie woogie i guess they they sang the song boogie woogie bugle boy which is extremely famous yeah uh and many other extremely famous songs and they were very famous and their legacy uh lives on today yep i don't know they were actually sisters i like that close harmony sound it's very good i like him too and i like this segment now as as we often do we were watching this with uh dad and he was making all kinds of sarcastic comments throughout this one yeah not unfair sarcastic comments, <laughs> to be honest. But I like this one. Uh-huh. I remembered this. I mean, I, again, pretty much remembered this whole movie. Yeah. But I quite enjoyed this one. It's a little stupid. Yes. But whatever. But whatever. This one I had remembered very pretty well also. I can't remember if I ever saw it separate from this movie, though, or if this one just really stood out to me for some reason. You may have seen it separately. It was certainly released separately. It's possible. Um, I just can't remember a particular instance like I can with some of the others, like Peter and the Wolf and Casey the Bat. This is a, actually a song that I will occasionally get stuck in my head. <laughs> I think it's a nice song. It is. I mean, is it the best Andrew Sisters song? No. No, don't be stupid. No. But, <laughs> no, but it's okay. I actually, you know what? This is so stupid. So first of all, for anyone who doesn't know, this is a short about two hats that are in love. Right. Two hats. Johnny Fedora and Alice Blue Bonnet are a literal fedora and a literal blue bonnet yep. and they are in love. Yep. They meet in the they they live in the window of the Bonton shop. <laughs> I got emotionally attached to these hats, mom. And I <laughs> I think it's mostly the song cuz I it do is. find the song pretty. Yeah. When when they sing about, you know, there's there's a little refrain he always sings to relay, to rely. There's something about the yearning in that. I don't know. It works for me. <laughs> I, I think it's funny at the beginning. They're w- dreaming of a hat box for two. <laughs> <laughs> I think the character design of this short is genuinely good. I like how Johnny Fedora, sometimes his lips are the brim. Sometimes it's the actual hole of the hat. Yeah. But you always know where the lips are. <laughs> like they put so much personality into a floppy hat. There's a lot of personality. So basically, they're in love. Don't worry about it. Alias gets <laughs> sold. For $23.94. That, doesn't that feel like kind of a high price for a hat in the 40s? It, a, I mean, yeah, it's, she's an expensive she's, hat. She's fancy. She's quite a catch. Johnny then gets sold. He's jumping up and down like crazy. He's a very bad hat because he yeah. keeps like jumping up to look over hedges and fences <laughs> and see like, is that Alice? Looking for Alice. Where's Alice? Runs into a police hat briefly. The police hat is funny. This is obviously New York, by the way. Yes. Yes, it is. I like that this one has a specific setting like that. Johnny hears Alice in kind of a sea of hats and he's jumping up and down. He flies into the wind. He gets picked up by a grody hobo and taken to a burlesque. (laughs) I know. Johnny has all the experiences. Hey, I got kids here. <laughs> Gets into a bar fight. Yeah, I think it's really clever in this sequence how the humans and the hats, like, 
interact and uh-huh. they're kind of mirroring each other uh-huh. then johnny blows through all of the seasons it's true time passes he's still creeping around the department store in case alice comes back i don't think he understands how how hats work <laughs> No, I don't think he does. He flows down the nastiest street ever. <laughs> like a street cleaner comes by and dumps water. Yep, he's getting washed, almost washed down the drain. But then he's picked up by an Iceman. Yep, who cuts holes in him. To make him a horse hat. <laughs> but it wasn't done with malice. <laughs> <laughs> because on the other horse is Alice. Yeah. So apparently, who you know, she's completely not the mode anymore her owner had to go buy a new hat it's a whole new year right (laughs) she's a 25 dollar horse hat (laughs) i can't get over the fact that they're horse hats in the 40s people watching this are just like ah yes horse hats we all know horse hats we all have horses around and some of them have hats probably not in the 40s but not that much long before you know the ice man in living that people might remember though horse hats the Iceman, I guess, liked having hats for his horses. It's just the thing. It's my Iceman and, style. And then the song really picks up and it's like much kind of jazzier. And it's more like, you Johnny Fedoras, you Alice Blue Bonnets. And it's, that, it's more kind of like what you might expect from an Andrew Sisters song. Yep. Basically, it's like, if you think you're gonna, you're having trouble finding the one you love, just be patient. Keep looking. You'll find it. <laughs> It, it'll just magically work out. It'll magically work out. You'll find an ice man who will cut holes in you. <laughs> and there she'll be. The girl of your dreams. Ah! <laughs> I'm so dead. <laughs> but at least we're dead together. <laughs> that kind of went weird. This is, a, this is a fun episode. We're having fun. It's true. Make my music. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. What do you think of that segment? Obviously, I I like it a lot. I like it too. Probably because your dad was making the comments. I was thinking about it more like, these are hats. <laughs> <laughs> this is a weird hat, hat situation. Like, you wouldn't... You, you, ha- you... Don't think about uh, them uh, as hats. Just think about them as love, you know? Metaphors. Yes. Here's... Here is the real problem. They are kissing at the beginning. That's like, it's like with the Lego movie, right? The Legos are in love, but they're holding hands. Right, right, right. In Zootopia, like there's kind of a question mark. Maybe Nick Wilde and Judy Hopps are in love, but we are never doing anything physical. We're never spelling it right. out. In, in the Cars movies, there's romance, but I don't believe we're kissing. I don't like, think so. Once, once you make it physical in any way, that's when you start going... It's a little weird. But just don't worry about it. Yeah. You just take it like they're people. I don't know. I usually don't think about it. Like you said, usually I just let it wash over me and it's perfectly fine and it's cute and it's like, oh, he's trying to find her and then he does. Um, But I did think about it more this time. Like, you really don't want your hats to behave like this. <laughs> no, you really... The Again, when Johnny's jumping up and down, that's when I'm like, I would return this hat. Right, this is a bad hat. It won't stay on my head. This dumb hat keeps flopping all over but the look, place. enjoy the song. Let the emotion Smack. wash over you. Enjoy the animation. Right, right, right. It's fun to watch. It's a fun little song. Now is the finale. Yep. The 15-minute long short that closes us out by far the longest segment. And... As you've guessed by process of elimination, 
my favorite. <laughs> Far and away. I mean, I, I love Peter and the Wolf. I love Casey and the Bat. I love a lot of the shorter yeah. segments. But yeah. this one, for me, is so good. This is the this one. This is the one. The, the man behind this one, the like featured performer, is Nelson Eddy. He does an amazing he job. He does everything in this. He is the narrator. He is the singer. He is the voice actor for Singers. multiple characters. He sings in three ranges. This is the kind of guy this guy was. He was a singer and an actor. He was both a popular opera star and a popular pop star at the same time. He was in <laughs> television. He worked in nightclubs. He really did just do it all. Earned three stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. One for film, wow. one for musical recording, and one for radio. Huh. I didn't know you could get more than one. You can, if you rule this hard. <laughs> he sang at the third inauguration of FDR. Earned three gold <laughs> records. He was a huge deal. This short really makes use of all of his talents. It's an incredible it. showcase for him. And this is another circumstance where, like, I didn't know who Nelson Eddy was while we were watching. Because I don't <laughs> usually... I just do, like, preliminary research before we start watching. I don't dive into it. But I wrote down, like, yeah. look up this guy. He is crushing it. So, so you know, maybe we should say what the segment oh, is. Oh, yes. Uh, the whale who wanted to sing at the Met. <laughs> Opera Pathetique. Whenever it's been re-released, it has another name. I have to look up what it is. Is it Willie the Operatic Whale? Because that's what I always want to call this. Yeah, that's correct. Which I think is also maybe what I think of it as. So... We open with just a super long note and like crazy visuals happening. But then we start seeing newspapers. A mystery voice sings at sea. And then a sailor sees him. It's a whale singing. Everybody's going on. Lots of newspapers. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. Which is <laughs> him singing as a woman and a cat respectively. I know. So I many. really enjoy the aside with the learned men arguing about it the learned men of the scientific community arguing yes which is the part that i uh i sang at the beginning mangled to have podcast in it it's where they're <laughs> arguing impossible yes. preposterous half of them are like there's no way and the other half of them are like it's totally a way i don't know why i like that aside so much but i really do it's really enjoyable yeah, it reminds me funny. of like the original willy wonka and the chocolate factory where there's just like, <laughs> we see the entire world reacting to this strange news, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But then we meet the impresario of the Met, Teti Tati. Teti Tati. His name is fun to say. He decides that the whale must have swallowed an opera singer. He's a swallowed a opera singer. He's found opera singers in all sorts of ridiculous places. Why not inside of a whale? And so he decides he needs to sign her. And they like, it's a big kind of publicity stunt. Yep. He's going to sail out and find that whale so he can rescue the opera singer. Opera singer. As he and this says. short is in its own silly, surreal way. But it's very much about capitalists like versus artists, you know, it's, it's literally <laughs> bit, about yeah. like this guy who I think is very much characterized here as like caring about the money and the publicity and his own ego and what he does. So a seagull, I can't remember if the seagull has a name, but yeah, the seagull's friend is named Whitey. There you go. Whitey the seagull. He finds out that all this is happening because of the publicity. He sails out to Willie, who is singing an operatic version of shortening bread to some <laughs> seals who are nearby. And, oh, 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 what? Mom status. Mom status of Willie? <laughs> 
know mom's status. <laughs> so, uh, mom is mentioned in the shortening bread song, kind of. You know, Mammy's little baby loves shortening bread. So, mom's status. Give them babies some shortening bread. What is mom, what is Mammy's opinion on shortening bread? Um, is good. <laughs> <laughs> Not your, I mean, I, look, you know what? You're right. It's I'm trying good. to think if there's an opinion in the song. Is no, there an it opinion isn't. That's in the song? a joke. But you know what? It is good. I, I like shortbread. It's very difficult to find a proper mom status in some of these uh, package films. That's fine. <laughs> this, is just a, this is just a complete chaos episode anyway. But uh, yeah. this also, like, I definitely enjoyed this song and would, like, sing this song. I think about this song because of this movie. Obviously not written <laughs> for it, but I always think about, yep. like, Mama's Little Baby Love Shortening. Good. I can't ever eat shortbread without thinking about Willie the Whale. And uh, he's really excited when he finds out there's an impresario signing for you, because apparently this is what he has wanted to happen. He's hoping to be discovered. He is wondering what to sing for his audition. I would think he would be swimming off rather what than sailing say? off. But, he's, you know, he's, he's in sailing. Chaos episode! We're <laughs> leaving it in! <laughs> He's sailing. Um, he decides on Figaro as his audition song. And of course, he's singing the song that's like, Figaro, 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 Figaro. <laughs> yes, he just keeps saying the word Figaro. And of course, he's trying to find the boat with Teti Tati. And, you know, hilarity ensues. He ends up underneath the boat at one point, And Whitey's like, no, it's up there. Willie, <laughs> Willie is also a great design. I mean, he's a whale, but they have so much yeah. fun with his whaleness. And they put his mouth in a really funny place. <laughs> Like halfway up his body, like a like a fold, yeah. like a crease. Because of course, a, a whale's mouth is like you know yes. the front of its face, but they make it like he's got this gigantic nose, <laughs> <laughs> and his mouth is just in the middle of his body. Yeah, it's kind of funny when you think about it, but it also works for Willie's design. <laughs> yes, because again, you know, he should have a big, ridiculous mouth. For an opera right. singer. Um, and he can sing tenor, baritone, and bass, which are represented by three uvulas. Yeah. And it's funny, Dad clearly He's... hasn't seen this as often because he was like, this is really creepy. And <laughs> I was just like, listen, we all know Willie the Whale has three uvulas. Like, this is just... It's how... just the thing, right? <laughs> I watched this when I was a kid. I accepted it. And now I have still accepted it. Um, I like how Teti Tati is on a boat with three sailors um, who he's trying to get them to harpoon Willie because, you know, he's got to rescue the Hapra singer. And the sailors become enchanted with Willie's voice. They just, like, love it. They love They're it. like, this is great. Woohoo! It's so wonderful. Willie's a good singer. He's a great singer. They're like, shut up, Teti Tati. <laughs> and they're, like, sitting on him sometimes to get him to, you know, leave them alone so they can just listen to the beautiful music. Right. They keep blocking him from killing Willie, but he briefly is escapes and then we cut to Willie or I don't think if I don't know if it's supposed to be Willie imagining specifically but we go to this fantasy sequence of Willie getting to actually sing at the Met there's discrete spotlights on his uvulas there's a bunch of seagulls in attendance which by the way is my vision of hell <laughs> everybody who's sitting under the seagulls has like paper hats made out of their program seagulls are vicious every every time i've ever been near a seagull it's given me eye contact that says i could kill you and i've sent back eye contact that says yes you could mr seagull <laughs> 
Yep. So he's doing all kinds. Of, I always remember when he's doing Pagliacci. <laughs> yeah. So it's just that one's very funny. At, I mean, he does several at the Met. I believe he's still doing Figaro. I, I didn't write down exactly what he's singing, but yes. Then uh, he's somewhere else and he's doing Pagliacci. <laughs> he is the clown Not makeup. Pagliacci. 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 He has the clown makeup. <laughs> Yes, and he's crying, doing the laugh cry that he does. Um, and then, of course, he's like spouting water out his blowhole. Blow spout. Blowhole, that's the word. And um, everybody in the audience, or the, the orchestra, has umbrellas and the orchestra pit is flooded. And, <laughs> and I, it's very funny. And it's funny because in between the Met performance and this performance, it's a montage of like music. I think these are all at the Met, it's just different performances. I thought that was my interpretation. Well, possibly, but either way, in between these performances, uh, it's a montage of newspapers. Like, oh, he's such a good opera yeah, yeah. singer. After Pagliacci, it's a magazine montage showing that he's becoming like more popular with the masses. Not unlike yeah. Nelson Eddy himself. <laughs> yeah, and then I think he's in Tristan and Isolde. Yes, that's correct. And he has a <laughs> he has a co-star that he keeps blowing off stage. And <laughs> it's funny because she, of course, is a big woman opera singer. She's you know very large proportioned woman but next to willie she's teeny weeny this sequence is so good because it is funny but never in a way that distracts from like this is genuinely willie's dream and the whole time you're remembering but wasn't teddy totty about to so this is what confused me about whether or not was the med because then there's all this stuff about how he's going on an international tour so I assume oh, the next true. performance was the international tour, but maybe it's not. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter. He does many performances. This is my favorite of Willie's performances, which is Mephistopheles. <laughs> With all the f- actual fire. And he hits <laughs> such a low note. It's yeah. It's cool. It's scary. It is. And man, this guy can sing the actual yes. Nelson Eddy. He sings this whole thing and... It's very good. But he's also in other parts where he needs to be genuinely funny and where he yeah. needs to be genuinely funny while singing. Like he does, he truly can do it all. But then the fantasy breaks and t- because Teti Tati has killed him. managed to harpoon Willie and kill him. And it's this kind of very quiet, beautiful final shot where Whitey is, is missing his friend and Nelson Eddy in narrator mode now says, don't be too hard on Teti Tati. Willie's singing was a miracle, and people just aren't used to miracles. Yeah. And then they tell us that Willie is, like many other characters in this film, in heaven, (laughs) singing in a hundred golden voices, and he does one last beautiful performance, and they pan out and you see that heaven is sold out. Yep, because everybody wants to be there to hear Willie. I, I mean, look, I'm a known sad sack. (laughs) I love everything about this short. I love Nelson Eddy's performance. I love the music. I love seeing, like, getting your little taste of opera, of all these different Uh operas. I love the design of Willie. I love, you know, any story about, like, creatives yearning to be in the spotlight kind of gets me. (laughs) And I love how sad it is. Like, this is the closest I think this movie gets to the transcendence of something like Bambi. Some of the earlier movies is, you know, Willie's singing was a miracle and people just aren't used to miracles. Yep. 
and that sentiment at this time from this studio, it it really resonates. I I mm-hmm. love this segment. <laughs> and that's the end of the movie. Curtains close. Yep. No, no close. credits. It's over. Go away. Well, of course. So, real quick, because somehow this has been our longest record. <laughs> For a movie that doesn't exist, but um, sequels, spin-offs, remakes, rides, and reboots. Yep. Well, there is a sequel to the segment Casey at the Bat. There is indeed. Casey Bats Again from 1954. Did you watch this? I did watch this. Did you watch this? Yes, I watched this. I had seen it before, but I did watch it again today just to refresh my memory. It's not as good as Casey at the Bat. No, I think it's actively quite horrible. (laughs) The basic story is, at the end of the game, where Casey loses in Casey at the Bat, Casey's wife comes up to him, and don't remember about how he was a womanizer in the original, but, you know, he's actually (laughs) married, tells him that she's pregnant, basically. Casey's like, yeah, I'm going to have a boy, carry on my legacy. And he ends up having nine girls. Um, His girls do end up being, though, a baseball team. And it requires his friends to point out to him, hey, your girls are good at baseball. Because otherwise he's just, like, sad all the time. Yeah, and (laughs) uh, his daughters become, what is it, the Caseyettes? The Caseyettes. Mudville's new baseball team. Well, they're, they're in the women's league, of course. And they're all very good and it comes down to a similar situation at the end of the of what is it like the big championship game they end up getting the bases loaded and patsy's coming up to bat patsy good old patsy she's so good um but then casey dresses up as a girl and is gonna take her place because he's like we can't lose i'm gonna have to take over and of course he does a terrible job and patsy actually hits it from behind him and while patsy hit the ball casey ran the bases um and so you know he gets his glory back through his daughters whatever (laughs) yeah this is rancid let me go through some of the reasons why first of all imagine a casey at the bat short but one you don't have the great language of the original poem two no you don't have the great narrator you don't this one is narrated by some guy three you don't have the rubbery people animation that was so funny. It's like a more realistic animation style, and literally who wants that? So it takes away everything that's good about the short. A. B. There is no reason to do a sequel to Casey at the Bat. A poem <laughs> with one of the most perfect endings of anything ever. It's true. But also, if C. Just take this short on its own merits. Pretend it's just about some baseball guy and his baseball daughters. Yeah. It sucks. I didn't laugh at all. And it's so... It reads as so sexist now. I mean, some of it is supposed to be he's sexist. But some of it is the short actually being sexist. Like, the way he treats his wife. There's one part where it's like, after he realized his daughters could be good at sports and deigned to love them, you know... He started talking to his wife again. He just slaps her on the butt. I know. That sucks. It sucks. Yeah. I I despise this short very much, and there's a reason it's not a classic. Yep. It's a bonus feature on the Melody Time DVD, and that's where it deserves to die. (laughs) Speaking of Melody Time, that kind of feels like a sequel to this one, because it's a collection of many small shorts. Well, save that for the end. Oh. Um, I mean, we were in the sequel, spinoffs, remakes, rides, and reboots. I guess Melody Time isn't actually the next one. It's the one it's after not. next. 
I'm just I'm just mentioning that it feels like a sequel. Yep. The end. Yeah, so Casey Betts, again, is the main thing I had to talk about. Some of the stuff is also featured in the parks a little bit. A little bit, yeah. A little bit featured in the parks, but, you know, not a lot. Willie, weirdly, I think has made the most appearances of uh, any individual character in other things. Yeah. He's in a Mickey Mouse Works short with Ludwig von Drake. He's Uh in a couple of House of Mouse episodes, very minor cameo appearances, so I didn't bother looking them up. But I think it is funny. And he was also in a recent Mickey Mouse short, one called Oh Soul Mini, which is apparently opera themed. And so he makes a cameo in it. I didn't bother watching all of I didn't bother watching all of these things because he's barely in them. Yeah. But I did think it was funny that like House of Mouse and the the Mickey Mouse shorts are apparently where all the wartime characters went. (laughs) Yes. He also has the most prominent placement in the parks, or at least used to. He was on a poster in the line for Mickey's Philhar Magic. Mm -hmm. And that's it. Believable. Believable. Oh, also, also, sorry, that's not quite it. In Walt Disney World, they were planning to build what they would call the Willie the Whale Complex. Oh. An aquarium and marine mammal park which would incorporate animation into their shows. Interesting. But it never happened. <laughs> this was in 1971 they were planning to make this. That's funny. Would have been interesting. Could have been interesting, yeah. And that's really it. I mean, this movie clearly yep. has not left much of a cultural impact. Disney has not let it yeah. leave much of a cultural impact. Yeah. You know, even though it got this home video release in 2000, if you were not, as I was, a very small child, I cannot imagine you, like, particularly (laughs) enjoying this lousy DVD VHS release. Right. So, Mom, we don't rate these movies numerically. We ask each other two questions. The first of which is, would you recommend this movie? Yes, I think I would recommend this movie, but maybe not the DVD version. (laughs) Which means I'm not really sure what version I'm recommending. (laughs) But, I mean, I'm hoping someday there's a better version and that's what I would recommend of this. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I would also recommend it. Um, It's a qualified recommendation. Exactly. First of all, you gotta, you know, know what you're getting into with this one. Like, don't have the expectations that this is going to be a Disney classic. Have the expectation that this is some really good shorts and some interesting artistic interludes between them. Yeah. Um, and the other qualification is that I agree with you. This DVD version is really, really wretched. Yeah, it's. I feel like it's not a great introduction. And, and I would say, as carefully as I can, you can type the names of all of these shorts into Google... And interesting results come up (laughs) on certain websites uh, wherein you can watch all of these shorts in their proper aspect ratios completely uncensored. Mm. And if I was going to watch any of this movie again, that might be how I did it on (laughs) totallylegalwebsite.biz. Look, until there is a, you know, fully legal, legitimate Disney release of this movie in an actually good version we can point you to... TotallyLegalWebsite.biz is probably the best way to do it. It's true. It is bargain bin Fantasia, but it has its but own... it's not terrible. At its best, it has its own style. Yes. And it's, a, it's an interesting piece of history, and I don't think it deserves to be quite as hated as it is. Now, the second question... Yeah. 
is kind of pointless this week, but mom, would you let a child watch this over and over Mm. on VHS? Yes, indeed I would. I did show it to my children and let them watch it plenty. And to be honest, I think I might recommend it more for children because obviously you made an emotional connection with this movie as a child. Oh yeah. And I think that introducing it to children when they're younger would lead to more people liking it these days as opposed to the people who hate it. (laughs) Second all that, I would also say it's a good thing to show to kids because like it did introduce me to so much culture. It's an introduction to music. It's an introduction to Peter and the Wolf. It's an introduction to Casey and the Bat. It's an introduction to like opera Opera. and... You know, these these famous singers, some of whom, Andrew's right. sisters, Benny Goodman, extremely relevant now, some of whom maybe less uh-huh. so, but, you know, still interesting historical. Like, this yeah. really was an important movie to me as a kid, as so many Disney movies were, and yeah, watch it. Yep, I think it's definitely worth it. And as a kid, you're not gonna, like you know, worry about the quality of the animation or the pacing or the horrible, boring things grownups care about. (laughs) You're just going to have a good time. And I think that's what we've had today, Mom, on this absurdly long episode. (laughs) (laughs) I think we have had a good time. So that's going to do it this week for me, Mom, and Make Mine the Mouse. (laughs) If you liked the show, please come back next week for 1947's Fun and Fancy Free. It's another shorts package. What do you think of this movie, Mom? Jiminy Cricket is up to his old antics again. Oh, that... I He's in this? He's in oh, this. Oh, that war criminal. Oh, <laughs> my arch nemesis. Breaking into people's houses. All right, next week, we'll, where I once again do battle with the Dark Lord Jiminy Cricket. <laughs> I'm me. I'm Mom. And it all started with a mouse. <laughs> <laughs>